Welcome to Get Your Book Done. I'm your host, Christine Closer, a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author, award-winning publisher, and book writing coach to thousands. I love helping aspiring nonfiction authors write, publish, and promote their best books because there's nothing more powerful than writing a book to transform your life, your readers' lives, your business, and ultimately the world with your message. So let's get started. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Christine Closer here. And as always, thrilled to bring you another amazing guest today where we're going to be talking about a literary agent's crash course in publishing. Now, for those of you that don't know Bill Gladstone, let me first just tell you a little bit about him before we dig in here. Bill's agency, like he, it does, it's not the biggest literary agency in the world, but his agency is responsible for $5 billion, B, with a B, billion dollars in retail sales. They had 10 authors from his agency that were first-time authors who have sold more than a million copies of their book with one of those first-time authors selling over 14 million copies. And Bill Gladstone is not only an amazing agent for people like Marie Kondo and Neil Donald Walsh and Eckhart Tolle and I think even Neil Young and Barbara DeAngelis and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But Bill himself is also the author of a dozen books. And one of those books called The Twelve sold more than a half a million copies and got published in a dozen languages around the world. So when we talk about a literary agent's crash course in publishing, you know, there's no one better than Bill to talk about that. So welcome, Bill. I'm so glad you're here. Well, I'm delighted to, to be on your show and podcast. And, you know, if I can be of help to other authors out there, I'm delighted to do so. Well, you know, I've been blessed to have many conversations with you over the years, and you are always a help for my audience and my listeners. So um, where I want to get started with you in this conversation today is like, how did you land in this world of publishing and authorship? I mean, you have such tremendous success. You've seen this industry through so many different phases with the length of your career, but where did it all begin? Well, it's hard to believe because it predates my own birth, but in 1936, my father, Milton Gladstone, founded Arco Publishing in New York City. And so I was literally conceived 20 years later or so to run Arco Publishing. So I was conceived before I was even a human being, a fully grown person, to run a publishing company. And I was groomed. I actually remember the very first job I had at Arco Publishing when I was six years old, I went in to put price stickers on books that had the price changed. Mm. And I would go in with my older brother and we would do that for a few hours. Then we would get taken to a wonderful lunch. I remember my father loved this one restaurant, very famous at the time, Luchow's. It was a German restaurant where you had fantastic roast goose and delicacies. Then we'd go back, work for another couple of hours. And then at the end of the day, had I known, I would have been the richest paid employee in the history of child labor because <laughs> next door to my dad's Arco Publishing was DC Comics. And our actual payment was the freedom to choose any of the early editions of Superman, Batman, and the other comic books that DC published. Silly me, I didn't keep them, but I was only six years old. So. <laughs> 
Wow. What a story. So like to say that DNA, you know, that publishing and books and authorship and this whole business is in your DNA would be a, probably the most accurate statement of anything I could say about any literary agent. Like you were like, literally it's in your DNA. Pretty amazing. My DNA. And you know, I, my father believed people should work. I mean, he was, he was a depression area, you know, he came from humble beginnings. He started Arco. It, Arco's first massive bestseller was for the Armed Forces Test, published in 1936 when the Depression was at its height. And it was very important for people to find work. And the Armed Forces was one of the biggest employers. So people were competing just to get into the Army. And so the test was, you know, being taken by everyone. And he published the book and sold over a million copies. And, you know, Arco was an instant success. And then they were also the pioneer in publishing the first SAT guides. And they also were the big publishers of books about horses, health foods. So I grew up with the business. And I literally worked every summer. At one summer, we also had our own bookstore. So I ran the bookstore one summer. I was in accounting. I was in sales. I remember one year I, I was able to do international sales. I got to go to Japan and Europe. So I literally experienced every single element. And I remember I was still in college, well, actually graduate school, and I was having lunch with someone who tried to hire me to run there as a division of Simon & Schuster to be editor-in-chief. I was like 23 years old. And I said, do you really think I'm qualified? And they said, you don't know what you know. You're overqualified. You know everything about publishing. This was, you know, I was 23 years old. I didn't know everything about publishing, but I obviously knew a lot. I had done literally everything. And then I became, you know, then I went to graduate school. I was interested in anthropology, left anthropology uh, to help my dad out. He had a, had a heart attack and I became editorial director of ARCO. And then I, fortunately for me, not so fortunate for ARCO, was invited to go around the world to make a couple of movies. And in those days, we didn't have faxes and we didn't have cell phones. And my dad had another heart attack. So for financial security for the family, sold the company to Prentice Hall in 1979. So they offered me a contract, which I said, no, I don't need a contract. And at that time, I was more interested in film. So I actually went out to Hollywood to be an associate producer of another film project. But I missed books. Mm. So I came back and I was, I was doing some consulting and publishing. And I had gone to school with Peter Yovanovich of Harcourt Brace Yovanovich. And they were setting up Harcourt Brace San Diego. And we had lunch. And he said, you know, I'm looking for someone with entrepreneurial experience who also knows the book business. And I said, I know the book business. So they flew me out. They gave me a hardship $10,000 signing bonus, which is a lot of money back then, just to take the job because publishing was based on the East Coast. And most senior executives didn't want to take a job with a firm out in California and relocate because if things didn't work out, they wouldn't have any choices of where else to go. And I didn't care at the time. I was single. And ah, even though Peter's father, William Ivanovich, had this reputation of firing everybody after a couple of years, I wasn't that concerned because I even told them, I said, yeah, I'm only going to be here a couple of years because I really want to run my own company. And sure enough, I did get fired for reasons that they regretted. Somebody leaked a story. And uh, anyway, there was a lot of envy because I was taking the corporate jet and having a great time and the head of the college division. Anyway, long story short, I ended up creating Waterside in 1982. And I really created one to make movies. But as often happens when an editor leaves a major publishing company, 
books are canceled. So the books that I had acquired were canceled, and they were books that required a, a level of intelligence that not all editors had. I mean, one book was about the nature of time and space called The Sphinx and the Rainbow. That book is still in print, retitled now as An Arrow Through Time by David Loy. And so it was a book that the other editors didn't understand. I ended up taking it on when it got canceled. It was actually the first, the second book that I sold. I sold it to Shambhala. And, you know, the book was edited by Ken Wilber, who went on to become very famous. And and there was a number of other books, including a book uh, about the Conquest of Cancer, which was the story of Virginia Livingston, who was the first female doctor to discover the link between cancer and diet. And, oh, wow. And so, again, what happened with that book was Harcourt was also publishing a magazine for the chicken industry. And the book was very critical of the way chickens were being raised because they were carcinogenic potential. And so they canceled the book on that basis. Dr. Virginia came to me and said, what do I do? And I said, oh, I'll find you another publisher, which I did. So I, I, I started as a sideline while creating my first films, the book side, and became a literary agent. My father at the time thought it was crazy. He said, how are you going to make any money in California? There's no publishers. Nobody knows who you are. You know, you have degrees from Harvard and Yale. You could get a real job. What are you doing? I said, oh, it'll work out. And I got very, very lucky. I was friends with Andy Kay's daughter, uh, Nancy Kay. And um, through Nancy, became good friends with her father, Andy Kay, who had a company called Nonlinear Systems, which overnight became K-Pro Computers. And I was doing some special projects to help Andy. And while there, all of his tech writers who were writing the tech manuals for the new K-Pro computer found out about me and my relationships to publishing and asked Andy if it would be okay if they side-blighted with books about the very products they were writing documentation. He said, okay. Next thing you know, Waterside became the second most important literary agent representing technical authors. Two years later, we became the most important because John Brockman, who had been the leader in that field, dropped out because in 1984, there was actually a glut of computer books and nobody wanted them. I didn't have any other kinds of books. I'd sold about 100 computer books in the first two years, and I didn't really have any other kinds of books to represent. So I stayed with it and took care of transferring a title on a software product that had been canceled to one that wasn't canceled. And I just stayed with it when everybody else, you know, left. And when the industry started to come back for computer books, we rapidly became the leading provider of how-to technical manuals in the world. And that led to the Four Dummies series and many other series. And we've never looked back. I was having a lot of fun. I met, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and I represented Peter Norton and Linus Torvalds. And, you know, I, j- I spent for about 10 years just doing tech books. I was so busy and we had so much fun. And then the internet kind of destroyed the market for tech books. I mean, we still do tech books, but you can get everything on the internet. So instead of selling two and a half million copies a year of Windows for Dummies, we're down to maybe 100,000 a year, which is still good, but not the bonanza we had. So I've always been a little bit ahead of the curve. So we started representing online courses way back in 2000. And, you know, now we have actually the online courses are now generating over a million dollars in royalties for our authors on an annual basis. And that's growing. It's now more significant to us than even the four dummies. And then along the way, of course, you know, I, I 
anytime I had an author or a project that was of interest to me, I would take it on. So that's why we have the diversity and, you know, it's fun. You know, you get to meet Pamela Anderson or Neil Young or, you know, some of the other people that I've represented. And, it, you know, I, a lot of it is really just for the enjoyment of, you know, meeting some of these interesting people. And then I also have a sincere interest to help people. So, you know, we started representing people like Neil Donald Walsh, Conversations with God. Urban Laszlo is one of my favorite clients. He, he's twice nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize and writes his best-selling book is Science in the Akashic Field. And, you know, where science and spirit meet is really, you know, sort of the sweet spot for Waterside. We're probably the leading agency in the world for mind, body, spirit books. And kind of interesting because I did feel, even though we still represent a lot of business and technology books, that something was missing. And, and to me, what was missing was heart. And, you know, with the mind, body, spirit, we definitely have heart. And actually, one of my favorite clients right now is HeartMath. And, you know, we're representing all their wonderful books. Such an incredible story. I mean, the journey really is amazing. I just have to ask, I mean, we've had so many conversations. Did you actually represent Neil in that very first book, like Conversations with God, book one? Or did you come in after that? Because that book was a game changer for me, personally. And it's interesting. I, I just actually did another deal for Neil today literally today. Neil and I have become very, very good friends. But no, it's interesting. I did not represent the original conversations with God, though I became very close friends with Robert Friedman, who published the book. And I got the full story. Bob actually rejected the manuscript, along with, I think, another 40 publishers. Neil did not have an agent for that book, and he sent it out himself, and he got rejected by everyone. Fortunately, Jonathan Friedman, Bob's son, didn't know that the book had already been rejected, saw it lying there, started reading it and fell in love with the book and told his dad, I think you need to reconsider. This is a really great book. I think we should publish this book. And that's how it all happened. And it's interesting. I actually have also done a deal just this week for Neil to have two new books done by Rainbow Ridge, which is the company Bob created after he sold Hampton Roads and which his son, Jonathan, is now running. Bob, unfortunately, left us about a year ago. But, you know, his son is is carrying on the legacy there. So it's a very interesting story uh, about Neil and about how something that had been rejected, even by the publisher that ended up publishing it, became... (laughs) Pretty wild story. So let's talk a little bit about authors and help everyone listening today, because if they're here listening to this podcast, it truly is because, you know, they want to be one of those success stories, you know, that they're hearing you talk about something, oh my gosh, I want that to be me. But I know that you see a whole heck of a lot of mistakes that authors make because of the position that you're in. Would you be willing to share a little bit of some of the you know, mistakes that you see them making when they begin to conceive and really plan for their book? Yeah. I mean, the biggest mistake authors make is thinking that people are motivated by money. Most agents may be motivated by money, but the really good agents are not. The really top agents are motivated by the individual and the project itself. And if you allow money to be your primary motivation, either as the writer or the agent, you're not going to be successful, not in the long run, because most books actually lose money. I'm books published by Random House. I'm not talking about the self-published books, almost all of which lose money. But even Random House loses money they don't maybe break even, but they don't make any money on 80% of the books that they publish. 
there's a very small number of books that are actually making money. And of the books that are making money, it's probably closer to the 2% of the books published by major publishers make enough money so that the author can earn $100,000 or a year. We're talking very, very few. So if you're motivated by money, you're probably doing this wrong. If the book that you're writing can benefit your business, that's a different story. You can write a book and maybe not even make $10,000 in royalties, but if that book reaches 5,000 people and 500 of those people sign up to use your services and you make money on your services, that's the way that a book can be a revenue generator for an individual author. I tell authors, look at your book as a marketing tool that if you're fortunate, becomes a profit center. And even though I believe this, in our case, the 10 or at least eight or nine of the 10 authors that sold a million copies never having written a book, wrote their books. At that time, advances for computer technical manuals were three to $10,000. 15,000 was considered you know, super good. So all of them actually lost money in terms of the advance, in terms of the value of their time to write their books. And they actually wrote those books so they could charge more for their consulting fees and grow their business. Despite that motivation, because of those times and everything that was going on, half a dozen of those authors made over a million dollars and just became full-time writers. But they didn't know that would happen. I didn't know that would happen. The publishers didn't know that would happen. It, was, it just happened. So my biggest piece of advice is don't look at the book as a moneymaker in and of itself. Look at how the book can enhance your business or if it's more personal, how the writing of the book can enhance your life and the life of those who read it. Beautiful. If the book does that, the money will follow. But, you know, there's a lot of things you can do in life that generate money. Book writing. Not one of them, necessarily. <laughs> so you talked about, you know, the number of people that get, you know, traditionally published books that actually end up in that, you know, 20% of being successful, if you, you know, successful at that top level. What nowadays would you say is the likelihood of getting a traditional publishing contract, especially for first-time authors? Because most of my audience, you know, they're working on their first books. You know, what are the chances of a traditional publishing deal nowadays? Not, if you're a first-time author and you're not a famous celebrity, and you're not running a major corporation, and you don't have 100,000 or more followers on your social media, you probably have no chance. Zero. I mean, maybe one in 100 or one in 1,000 chance, but there's very, very few editors who have the authority to sign a book just because they love the book. The proposal is more important to them than the actual book. In fact, the majority of books are sold on the basis of the proposal, not on the finished manuscript. And the element in the proposal that is most important to the publishing committee is the author platform and marketing. Many of the colleagues will not even read a sample page, let alone a full sample chapter. The acquiring editor will, and that's why you have to include your sample chapters so they know you can write and they want to edit it and they think they can. But the decision is made by a committee. And most of the members of the committee will at most read a one-page overview. And what they'll be focusing on is less on the topic and more on your marketing. So it's very, very difficult. Very difficult. Not impossible, but nope. uh, does require someone to already have something going on fairly well 
already yeah. in terms of platform. Cause I mean, I have authors come to me and they're like, Oh, you know, I really want to get a traditional publisher. I'm thinking of one client in particular. He's been two years sending out query letters, just trying to get a traditional publisher. You know, we finally sat down, he booked me for a consultation and we were talking and I mean, basically he had no platform. I'm like, what are you doing? You could have been published a year ago. If you had just self-published, you're never going to get where you want to go this way. He took the advice. He was like, fine, forget it. I'm not going to try to get a traditional publisher. He ended up self-publishing his own book. And within like three months of the book coming out, he was speaking on a TEDx stage. And, you know, none of that would have happened for him. And he wouldn't have been having this impact that he's having if he just kept beating his head against the wall of traditional publishers. So I'm glad you're talking about this because, you know, it is sort of like the state of affairs. There is that one in a hundred or one in a thousand that you said where it is possible, but most new authors today without that massive platform, I think should just be putting the time and energy into getting the book written instead of, you know, like this person did you know, wasting a couple of years. Slightly what you said. I'm a bigger fan of hybrid publishing than self-publishing. The the difference is that when you go with a hybrid publisher, if they're a good one, and it's like any other industry, you've got good ones and not so good ones. A good hybrid publisher will bring professionalism to every aspect. They will be a developmental editor, a good copy editor, a good proofreader, a good cover designer, a good layout team. They'll also have some ideas on reasonable expenditures you would make to help market and promote your book. The reason it's called hybrid is you receive the same results as going with a small traditional publisher, but the difference is instead of them paying you in advance, you're probably paying them a management fee and you're also paying for all the expenses. But you're also in most, I mean, I I can only refer to our program specifically. We have a program that we created with Amazon. So we do the ebook and the print on demand. We charge a modest $3,000 management fee, and then we pay out 70% of the revenue. And we have special relationships for audio. And if the book is successful, we also have a special relationship with Ingram Two Rivers, which is the premier distribution arm of Ingram. So we can get books into bookstores when bookstores reopen, but it's not a sure thing. And increasingly, first-time authors, even when they're published by major publishers, can't get a meaningful number of books into bookstores. It used to be that a first-time author could get three to 5,000 copies into bookstores. Today, that same profile would probably result in only three to 500 bookstores. So how important is it really to have a traditional publisher? 70% of all revenue in book publishing is generated by Amazon, that ebook and print combined. That's so, quite a statistic. <laughs> things changed. Four big-time authors. I mean, the way that we proceed as an agency, if I can get an author a six-figure deal with a major publisher in New York, that's our goal. If I can't, in most cases, I'm now recommending the hybrid publishing with us. We can get the book out in three to four months instead of 18 to 24 months, which is what a regular pub, traditional New York is doing. And there's, you know, if the book is successful, we have been able to resell the book to a random house or equivalent. We also have the ability to sell foreign rights because we're, we're not self-published. We're, you know, we're selected. We do maybe 50 titles a year and we're only doing books we know are going to be high quality, not just because of the authors. The majority of the people we're publishing are actually Waterside agency clients who can no longer get deals. Mm. Even somebody who had a book done, if the book sold less than 5,000 copies, they're dead in the water. It's almost worse than 
not having had a book before. Yeah. So in some cases, you know, rather than tell these clients we couldn't help them, when Amazon approached us and, and we're one of the top 10 agencies in the country, so it's a special program just for the top agents, we said yes, as long as they would agree to promote all of the books that we publish. Uh, they, we compromise, they will promote the Kindle edition. They won't do any specific promotions for the print. But, you know, if you're promoting the Kindle and somebody wants the print, it's going to increase the likelihood they'll buy the print as well. But it's tough out there for authors. But the good news is, if you can find a quality hybrid publisher, you can get your book out and good things can happen. It's still going to be up to you to promote and market the book. No one really has the formula for that. But if you're successful, that would be a faster, quicker way to grow than waiting two years to find out in the end, oh, we don't want to publish your book. Or what happens sometimes, oh, I got a nice small publisher and they're going to give me a $5,000 advance. Was it really worth waiting two years to get a $5,000 advance? Yeah. I once had a publisher offer me a whopping $1,000. And I was like, why would I do that? You know, I own my own publishing company. We have like, you know, editors that come to us are like, they can't even believe the quality standard that we hold. Like, we can't believe you do this for people who are, you know, sort of this hybrid publishing model. Like, this is what Random House does, but you guys hold the standard of quality. I'm like, Absolutely. Like if we're going to publish a book, we're going to publish the best possible book we can. But I am certainly not going to give up rights, you know, to my book to someone else for a thousand dollars. And I wouldn't recommend that any of you do that either, because you'd be way better off, you know, going a different route. Yeah. Listening in, when you do a deal with a traditional publisher, you're lucky if your royalty is going to be 15%. A lot of them, I mean, we just had a an author and his book is number one in his Amazon category. It's a you know, significant New York publisher, but his royalty rate isn't even 10%. <laughs> you know? Oh, good grief. Are you serious? I'm serious? Not even 10%? Not even 10% on the first, you know, there, there's escalators, but, you know, yeah. case. Wow. Um, you know, it, it's a book that needed, you know, anyway, there's a lot of good marketing and promotion in this particular instance that kind of offsets it. But, you know, you know, we don't know how it's all going to shake out, but, you know, with our model and other hybrid models, I think we're more generous than most at giving out 70%. But in any model that I've seen for hybrid, the payout is at least 50%. So it's going to be, you know, four to five times higher than with the traditional. So of course, it depends on your circumstances. If you're in circumstances where you have no money and you can't invest at all in, you know, your book, then yeah, I guess a $5,000 advance is, is better than nothing. And mm -hmm. it sometimes does make sense. And then it also has to do with personality. Some authors really need the support of being with a company and having, you know, other people who are going to be training them in terms of what they should be doing as a writer and an author. You know, a good hybrid publisher should be doing that as well. We try to do that. Um, I have to admit, you know, we don't have as big a staff as a traditional publisher, so we probably aren't doing that as much. But you know, there's trade-offs in whatever you do. And obviously, self-publishing can still work. You know, it certainly worked for 50 Shades of Grey, you know, but just be sure. But in that case, that writer, uh, you know, had written 20 or 30 books. So she really knew what she was doing. For a first-timer, I'd be very cautious about just signing up with any of the self-publishing. You really need the guidance. And you need Absolutely. to be cautious because most of these Companies are set up where, oh, it's only $500 or $1,000, but then once you sign, well, you should upgrade if you want editing, it's this. If you want to cover it, yeah. 
oh, the book cover design isn't included or, oh, the editing isn't included or no, we're not going to proof it. I had a client once who worked with like one of those, you know, kind of companies that didn't really focus on quality control. She worked with me to help her write a book, but then she was like, no, I really want to work with this publisher. They published her book in the wrong language. Wow. I mean, how, how does a book get published in a language other than the language a book was written in? So yeah, quality is, is certainly super important. Now, we have just a few minutes left, and I do want to make sure that everyone knows that they can go over to the show notes page because Bill has a great free resource for you over there. It's a Q&A power tips video. So it's a video you can go watch and just, you know, you can get 20 more, I think 20 more minutes or more yeah. um, of Bill just answering question after question after question. Yeah. So again, you go to the show notes to go ahead and grab that. I've got one more question I want to ask you, and then we'll kind of uh, round out the show here. And that question is like, as far as the writing goes, because we also have a lot of people right now, I know this is like literary agents crash course in publishing, and I feel like y'all just got a crash course in publishing for sure. But we have a lot of listeners who are still in the writing phase. What's like one writing tip that you would want to share with our listeners before we wrap up? Routine, routine, routine. Create a routine. Same face, same time, at least three days a week. You're going to be in a space where you will have privacy, where you won't be interrupted, and you're going to write. You're not going to wait for inspiration. You're just going to write. And if you do that at least an hour a day, three days a week, before you know it, you'll have a first draft manuscript. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And for those of you who need a little bit of support in that routine, if you're listening to this when this episode dropped live on May 18th, this is the week where I'm actually coaching you every single day at 12 o'clock noon in my book breakthrough quest, where you're going to get a little challenge every single day to move your book forward. So if you want to be part of that routine, then just head over to bookbreakthroughquest.com. Again, that's book breakthroughquest.com. Don't worry if you missed the first video, they'll all be there in our group. So you can go watch and listen to the entire thing, but that might help for some of you to get in the groove with that routine this week. Again, that's over at book breakthrough quest, but routine is so important. I'm grateful that you closed us out on that note there, Bill. So thank you so much for being here today, Bill. And thank you all for listening. Such a pleasure as always to converse with you and have you share, you know, your incredible stories and just your wisdom from decades experience in this industry, even before you were born. <laughs> well, I enjoy and I hope all of your writers had fun writing and end up pleased with their final books. Absolutely. And again, show notes to go get the link over to Bill's free resource for you. And until next time, happy writing, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Get Your Book Done. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to everything we talked about today. And if you want my help with your book, head over to christinecloser.com to learn more and get a free copy of my book, The Transformation Quadrant, which will show you how to blueprint your book in 15 minutes or less. The Get Your Book Done podcast is where the leading conversation is happening for transformational authors everywhere. And I'm grateful you tuned in.